Good morning. Well, before I uh, get to my text this morning, I do want to make sure that I mention uh, how important I believe a man like Dwight is. Um, there are uh, there were a number of of pastors here this uh, this weekend. If you were here for the the um, conference itself, you'll know that as we closed it out, we acknowledged some of these men and uh, and how. I believe important and actually vital to the the well-being of our movement they are. And uh, without the guys that were the first generation, there wouldn't be a second generation. And so uh, you are blessed to have this man here in this place and, and, uh, and for him to pastor. Uh, he's a, a very rare individual. And so I'm very, very thankful to call him friend. And uh, sometimes I have to kind of pinch myself that I keep getting invited back. It's kind of an amazing thing to me. My text in, uh, in the conference, or for the conference, was uh, in the second chapter of Galatians, and we're going to go back there. But I'm able to look at it from a completely different angle uh, this morning, because what we looked at in the, in the conference itself was why Paul wrote what he did at the first part of the chapter. And what he's doing is recounting for the people at Galatia, the reason behind uh, all of what took place, what we read about in chapter 15 of the book of Acts. And so what you have in chapter 2 in the first part of it up to verse 14 is Paul recounting some of the events that led to the, the other events of Acts chapter 15. So the two are compatible. What we looked at there is the, that particular chapter in Acts and what we see here gave rise to uh, what was really a, a big division that had taken place. And you might not think of it in terms of, of being a division, but it had the potential to be kind of earth-shattering to the church. And Paul felt so passionately about the issue that it was important enough to take it all the way to Jerusalem. And it was something that I, I have no doubt that Paul was willing to divide over. And the reason why Paul, of all people, would know that the law itself would never be able to make a person free. He was more than understanding of this. And so anyone who has ever had a chance to read the law, when, when you read what David says about it, that the law of God or the law of the Lord is beautiful and it converts the soul. Now, in David's understanding, I suppose that that would be true. But as I read the law, I look at it and say, I feel condemned. And not because there's anything wrong with the law. There's something wrong with me. Because I can't, I can't live up to the standard of it. And so Paul sees the church in Jerusalem believing that those who came to try to put something on the people had gone too far. And he felt that it needed to be addressed because the pressure to try to put on the Gentiles, what the Jews themselves couldn't keep, was going to be a burden that was way too much for them. So... Paul felt it necessary to address this. And that's what the first part of uh, Galatians chapter 2 deals with. So uh, with that, let's turn to chapter 2. And I'm, I'm kind of intrigued when I consider the, the, um, the conference that we just did. When you're looking at the book of Galatians, or if you're familiar with it, you could, depending on who your audience is, if you're going to be teaching it, it's a 2,000-year-old book. Let's remember that. And so it is Paul writing back to the churches at Galatia that he founded and, uh, and, and instructed in the first missionary journey. And so he's writing back to them to give them you know, comfort and instruction. At the same time, some pretty firm correction 
because there are those who are entertaining them and trying to get them to, uh, to go back to a law that no longer could save. So here, Paul is a, a person who is so very concerned for their well-being, and anybody who is going to be studying the book of Galatians could look at it as an encouragement. And so to us Calvary Chapel pastors especially, we could look at this as an encouragement. Yeah, let's continue on. We don't want to go back to the things that we used to be. We want to continue pressing forward as we always have. But then there are also those times, and I believe we're in one of those, like what Charlie had shared this morning, that it could very easily be also written as a caution and say, don't go back to what you've been. Rather than an encouragement, it could be a real warning. And so the book of Galatians, I believe, could easily be a warning for us as, uh, as people in the church that we wouldn't want to revert back to what it was before the Lord came in or try to mix elements of what we were with what we're supposed to be. So chapter 2, let's turn there and let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. We would ask, Lord, that you would give us ears that would hear and hearts that would be able to grasp and understand the importance of what we see in front of us here. We thank you for all of your provision. We ask, Lord, that you would make yourself known through your word this morning by your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We may talk with people constantly and ask them, how do you identify yourself as a believer? You, you, you would ask them, are you, are you saved? Are you born again? Or you might ask whatever the first introductory question when you're talking with someone. And if they will instantly start to say, well, yeah, I'm a believer because I do this or I do that, and it becomes some kind of an action, then you might recognize that they either don't understand the question or they're pointing to some kind of fruit or some kind of an effort and somehow that translates into salvation. What you would want to say, okay, great, that's the fruit of it, but what makes you able to do those kinds of things? See, the actions are not what's safe. The actions are the evidence of salvation already having taken place. So here, Paul is making sure that they understand that there is really nothing that we bring to the equation. So when a person would end up getting saved, I, I always say this back home, can you imagine how absurd it would be the moment that you get born again, that you come to God and you say, I'm so thankful that you saved me, but just so that you know, I'm going to be a real benefit to your kingdom because I'm awesome. We would, <laughs> we would never say something so ridiculous. What we bring to him is ourselves and ourselves only, and we bring nothing else, nothing of any value. You know, I think of, uh, I don't know what it was I saw, but somebody had reached into their pocket. It was making, making fun of what they actually had, and as they pull it out, there's some thread and some lint and a couple of other things of no value whatsoever. And so this is what we bring to the Lord. We say, here I am, I, pres I present myself in all of my brokenness and my failure, and I don't have anything to offer you. And God's reply would be, well, that's all I ever wanted. Because everything that's about you, I'm about to get rid of anyway. Because i got to break you down and take care of all of that old stuff and remove it out of the way that what I could put back in is the genuine and it's useful to me. Well, Paul would be very much acquainted with that. He understands it entirely. One of the things that Charlie had pointed out, too, that uh, in the book of Habakkuk, it's in chapter 2 at verse 4. If you want to just write that down, you can. We don't have to look there. But he says, Behold... The, the heart of the wicked or the, the other, you know, the, the wicked is not upright. His soul is not upright within him. And then it is contrasted, however, by contrast, the just will live by faith. So you have one or the other, the, the person who is not upright in heart, the wicked, that is their condition, but the just will live by faith. Now, here's an interesting thing when you stop to consider that. 
the time that Habakkuk's writing those things, uh, he's under the law. And the law is not necessarily what we would consider as something by faith, though you have to believe that the God who gives you all of those directions, you are supposed to faithfully follow those things. But the law was never able to make a person at the end of the day, you know, put their hands in the air and say, I am so free. The law never did that. So even if you could keep the law really, really well one particular day, just wait till tomorrow because you're more than likely going to fail miserably. And so it is why we see also in the book of Galatians at chapter 3, as, as he closes out the, the, the end of that chapter, uh, Paul says that the, the law itself, it was a schoolmaster, a taskmaster that was to bring us to Jesus. Another way you could put that is that as I read the law, I realize I'm completely ill-equipped for what God has asked me to do, to walk with him by faith. And so we get to the point of saying, God, as I read your word and as I read the law, there's just no hope for me. I can't do this. And God is able to say, well, I know that. And that's why Jesus came and died as he did. Because let's remember, it's very easy to forget. Before the law, how did people walk with God? Come on, church. Before the law, how did people walk with him? By faith. There was that time of faith. Remember, it was, it was at, or Abraham who, it says of him that he believed God. And God accounted it to him as righteousness. Because there was no law. He's not quoting Moses. I mean, that's down the line. So he was able to say, God has made a promise. God is trustworthy. And he is able to make good on that promise. Therefore, I believe and I wait. And I do. So faith. And so after the law has come and gone, we're right back to the same place of faith. And the law was to bring us to the point of saying, I'll never be able to be perfect as far as God is concerned. I just can't do it. And then we ultimately look to Jesus, and he's the one who gets us to the place of qualification. Not because of us, but because of him. We believe. And so Paul is so convinced of this and so concerned with it that he wants to appeal this all the way up. If you weren't here for for Thursday morning when I had my session, your first 14 verses breaks down into two different things where he says there were those who came from Jerusalem and they were trying to tell the Gentiles that you need to be circumcised and all the rest of it. You have to do these elements of the law. And he says, these people are nothing to me. And then after that, he explains a little bit about what Peter did and that how he and even Barnabas had gotten so browbeat into doing those things and trying to seem sympathetic to those men from Jerusalem that Paul had to outwardly call Peter out on his hypocrisy and how amazing that is that Paul would be able to say to Peter you're out of line and and he gives him correction now Peter doesn't need to remind him of who he is and and I, I believe this very sincerely I think that Peter was very good at taking correction because he had to so often be corrected by the Lord and it is a really easy thing for us to go ahead and have fun at Peter's expense, right? He's the, he's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, right? However, of all of the guys, whenever for every time that he really goofed up, he also said some dynamite things before the Holy Spirit, right? Remember when it was in chapter 6 when Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you? And people flipped out over it. In fact, some refuse to walk with him any longer. And as he asks the the disciples, how about the rest of you? Are you all going to leave too? Who was the one who spoke up? But Peter said, where else are we going to go? You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You have the words of eternal life. So why would it be that we would go anywhere else? Wonderful, Peter. 
I also look at him, and, and uh, any of you who have been to, to Israel, you've probably visited Tabga. And it was the place where Jesus was on the shore yet another time telling the, the professional fishermen who had been getting skunked, here's what you do to catch fish. And so it, as Peter realized that it was the Lord, he puts on his overcoat and jumps in the water. Not the best way of swimming, of course. I, I suppose that the boat probably beat him to shore. But all that he knew is that that's where the Lord was. Here's where I am, and I have to be there. And I love that about him, and I have admiration for him that, yeah, he was the impetuous guy that would be the first to speak up, and sometimes that got him in all kinds of trouble. And other times it was such a wonderful thing about him that I admire and I want to be just like him, in that wherever Jesus is, I don't have to be where I am now. I have to be where he is. And so Paul corrects him. We know that Peter takes that correction because in chapter 15 he goes with Paul to Jerusalem and said, yeah, you're right, there's a freedom that they have that we as Jews, we, we know what we're supposed to do and we can't keep the law. How can we possibly keep it or have them keep it as well? And so that brings us to Paul able to write to the Galatians and explain what has been done there in Jerusalem was done so that we could report back to you that regardless of what people are telling you about keeping the elements of the law, there's no need for you to do that. Once again, Jesus is, the law brings us to him, and he's the one who says, I'll take it from here. Now, the law was important. Let's make sure that we understand that. And I can't really point to outside the church here, but back home, there's a major street right out in front of the church. And if I speed, which of course I never do, but if... (laughs) It's California, you can't. You can't even get up to the speed limit before you hit traffic. So, um, it's true. So, in front of our street, or in front of our church, is Lincoln Boulevard. And Lincoln is um, a 45-mile-an-hour zone. Now, if I was to go ahead and hit 50, and a a police officer had pulled me over, and he says, I have to write you a ticket, and I was to ask, what is a ticket? I can't plead that ignorance because there's a law that's in place. The vehicle code of California tells me that whatever the posted speed limit is, if I exceed it, then I'm potentially going to get ticketed for that, and there's a penalty to it. And the law was much the same way. So I can't plead ignorance to say, what do you mean? I I can't even see any, any signs. What do you mean that there's a law? Well, that sign right there that says 45 miles an hour, that's the law, and that's your limits, and you've exceeded them. And so, yeah, I'm without excuse. Well, the law was that. It was put there to say, here are the guidelines. This is what is acceptable. This is what is not acceptable. And if you step outside of them, then you're guilty of it. And we all understand that the guilt of violating the law had an eternal consequence. There was no hope. And so we come to Jesus. And so Paul, able to put all those things out of play, tells us in verse 16, knowing this, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And here's the important part. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Justifies is a great word. I love it. Simply, one of the things I learned from my pastor years ago, he was very good about pointing out ways to remember things. And justification is, to say it this way, it sounds very much like just as if you've never sinned. Justified, just as if you've never sinned. So the idea that you will never be justified as though nothing is is held to your account, you'll never do that by the law because the law was on the person's side to keep. 
But when we look at it from the eyes of faith and what Jesus has done, we come to him and say, I couldn't keep this, therefore you kept it in its fullness, therefore I have faith in your, your payment of my guilt, my sin. We need to remember this. Jesus, in what he did, was the innocent paying for the guilty. That is the law, right? It was always the animals. They were having to pay the price. The people were having to take that poor, innocent animal who had done nothing and it was going to be put to death for their guilt. I don't know about you, but I am really glad that is not the case anymore. I wouldn't want to see that happen. I wouldn't want to know that I've caused that. And yet, I have to also come to grips with the fact that Jesus paid that price exactly the same way. I'm glad that it doesn't have to be done repeatedly, but the fact that he paid that price is enormously important and impactful to us, or it should be. Well, he goes on and he explains that, but if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are are also found sinners, is Christ therefore the minister of sin? Well, of course not. He's not the cause of it. Because we say that we are in him, we must also recognize that there is this need for forgiveness and and clearing the slate, if you will, because we still accumulate those things that are not right before God. And so that idea of walking with him all the time, we need to make sure that we also recognize from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where he says that, uh, that God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness and that the blood of Jesus cleanses us of all sin. That is an all-the-time kind of a thing. We need to acknowledge when we have fallen short. And we come to him and say, it's not as though I'm going to surprise you with this, Lord, but I have failed. And I know that it breaks and hurts my fellowship with you, so I acknowledge my sin and I seek your cleansing. Well, he's faithful and just to do exactly that. So by the same you know, reasoning that you have here in chapter 2, Paul is able to tell us, as we understand what the law is and what it represented, it would never be able to justify the person. You can be justified in Jesus, that's for sure. And just remember that even though you are in Jesus, it doesn't mean that we are perfect. We are justified. It is one of those situations where we are not, we are not sinless, but as far as sin is concerned, blameless. That's what the Bible tells us. Well, so verse 18 tells us, For if I build again those things which are destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. Great question. Can you say amen to it? So if you hear people say, I'm a believer because I, if it's not followed by because I have trusted in the finished work of Jesus and I can't do anything to save myself, now you know you're talking to a believer. But if it is one of works, which is so much of the church, and if you pursue that a little bit further and and you'll get them to maybe admit things like, well, I believe that that I'm a good person. I love that one because if you've ever asked it, let me just do the role-playing thing with you. If you come to somebody and you say, do you know that if you died that you would go to heaven? Anybody ever use that as your introductory thing when you're talking to someone? I'll take that as a maybe. Okay, well... If you do, and the person says, well, I'm a good person, feel free to go ahead and say, that's great. I didn't ask that, though. I didn't ask if you were a good person. I asked if you knew that you were going to go to heaven. And if they equate being good with going to heaven, this is a great book for them to understand. Great book for them to look through. Now, we're going to get to verses 20 and 21, which I didn't really get a chance to do on Thursday morning because... Speaking to pastors and to leadership, it is for us to recognize that there is a time when correction must come. And pastors, sometimes even pastors, must be corrected. 
If they're doing things outside of what is in the scripture, they have to be obedient to the word of God above all things. We stand before God someday and he's not going to ask about the way that the building looked or any of the rest of that. He's going to say, were you faithful to my word and did you tend the flock of God that I had entrusted to you? And so, as we read through these things, it is important for us to recognize that we are to be beholden to the word of God, be obedient to it. And with that in mind, before we look at the rest of our text, which is the reason why Paul was so firm with what was going on in Jerusalem, I want you to also notice that there is sometimes a real cost that comes from being honest with the scripture. It's in chapter 4 of Galatians. So before we read the, the two key verses, if you were to ask anybody from, you know, that knows about the book of Galatians, you would say, so what are the big pull quotes, if you will, out of chapter 2? They're the last two verses. And anybody that knew that I had chapter 2 would probably have thought, well, he's just going to focus in on, on verses 20 and 21. Yeah, but I'm talking to pastors. I'm talking to the point that, yeah, there are those times that what do you divide over? And what Paul, what would Paul have been willing to divide over? Would he break fellowship with guys like James in the church back at Jerusalem? Would he break fellowship with Peter and the other apostles? Over this, you betcha, he sure would. Because he tried to keep the law. He was so zealous for it. Read his pedigree in Philippians chapter 3. You'll see how zealous he was for those things. And he realized that, look, those things that used to be gained to me, me being the Pharisee of Pharisees and keeping the law blameless and all that stuff, those things are lost to me that I may gain Jesus and be found in him not having my own righteousness. He knows. He is willing to count it as a Jewish man who knew it from his infancy. He says, those things are lost to me. Why would I want to hang that on the Gentiles? Amazing stuff. And so he comes and he says these things in way of correction. And what an amazing thing for him to say. Verse 15. So what then was the blessing that you enjoy? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own right eye and given them to me. They knew of infirmities. And we know that as he was there, that they welcomed him in. And that was when he was coming to bring them the good news. And then in come the people who are trying to get them to revert back to something that couldn't save them. Now there is this friction that's taken place. And he says, remember when I first came to town? There wasn't a thing that you wouldn't do to try to minister to me. And then look at this. What an amazing thing. Verse 16. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? My goodness. I wish he would say that in every single epistle that he ever wrote. Because of all the quotable quotables, boy, that one is right up at the top. Because how often do we encounter that? That when we try to just be biblically sound in our counsel with our friends and our family and people, that they become angry at us because we're telling them the truth. So you want to say, look, I didn't walk into this discussion with you as your enemy, but now that I tell you the truth, does that somehow change things? So then he gets to the crux of why we're here. Verses 20 and verse 21. Verse 20 says, and these are just statements. Now, what we had read in verses 16 to 19, those are reasoned things. He's saying, work with me through this. By keeping the law, we'll never be justified. It's impossible. You can't be justified by your own actions because Jesus has already paid that price. So he explains all of that. And then he makes this series of statements, which are very profound. Verse 20 tells us this. I have been. What's the tense of that? Have been past. Now again, remember, we are reading 
a letter that was written to the contemporaries. So anyone who's ever read from that time on, and just a little quick little math quiz, are we before or after the writing of this? Yes, we're after it by a long shot. So any one of us that read this would be able to say, I have been crucified with Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was an enemy of the cross when that took place. So, of course, he's speaking in a spiritual way. And so every person who reads it would have to look at that and say, great, does this apply to me as well? Has my life been put to death in him? What I was of my reputation, who I am and what I bring to the table, was it also put there on the cross? Was it nailed there? Yeah, well, Colossians tells us, and we'll close with that as we get there. So the first of the things he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And he says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Paul was fond of pointing this out, and he would use it in a couple of different ways. He would talk about how Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, lived and indwelt him. And yet he would also tell us that there is a positional change that takes place. And so it'll be where he would say, Jesus lives in me, but I am in him. And he would say that, we've heard it quite a bit over the weekend, from Second Corinthians 5.17, that anyone that is in Christ, positionally, is a new creation and the former things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Any believer that is a genuine believer, though they may not think about it very often, if they were to dwell upon what was being said there, they would be able to say, I totally understand. It applies to my life. Positionally, I was separated, alienated in my sin and trespass, and I had no hope. However, being in Christ, coming into a relationship with him, another one of the verses we heard often, two things, two verses from uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 11, is that it says he came to his own, and his own what? Did not receive him. We know that. We understand the history. However, verse 12, those who did come to him, to those he gave the right to be numbered among the children of God, receiving him. If that's taken place, and you said, I cannot fix things for myself. Jesus, I accept the gift of eternal life that you have paid for at the cross. I receive that gift. I receive you. I I ask you into my life. Indwell me by your Holy Spirit. I want to be born again. However you said that. That's a positional change. You were in a place of hopelessness and helplessness. Now you're in a place of, I await his return. I want to see him face to face. That's a positional change, folks. So, as he explains that, I have been crucified. Therefore, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And then notice the change that is supposed to take place as well. Isn't it weird how often we will hear the gospel message presented by people, but never the follow-up to it? If you have said yes, or you have affirmed your need for Jesus and asked him to forgive you and cleanse you and all the rest of it, why are we not telling people that from that moment that there needs to be a life of change and sanctification, becoming more like he is? Because he's just said it right here, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and now the life that I live... In the flesh, I live in faith in the Son of God. If ever there was a guy who you could say was a whole lot different after his face-to-face with Jesus, it's that guy. And it also shows what a great sense of humor God has. Because can you imagine of all the people that would be like the least likely to possibly be the gospel guy to the Gentiles? It's this dude. Because he was persecuting and putting to death and imprisoning the church. 
Amazing. In fact, you ever want to know how this must have looked to the people? Look at chapter 9 where he gets saved in the book of Acts. And look at what happens when, when uh, um, the Lord visits, uh, uh, visits Ananias and says, Hey, I need you to go and see. Um, not Ananias. He goes to him. The man, oh my goodness. This is what's happening to me now that I'm getting older. You know what? Let's do this. Can I get an amen, Dwight? Don't mean to point you out or anything. Acts chapter 9. Good grief. Yeah, it's, it's going to be my normal life from now on. Amen. <laughs> yeah, it is Ananias. Why am I thinking that? Verse 13. This is fun. I love this. Verse 13 of Acts chapter 9. So Ananias, when God had told him, I need you to go and get a hold of Paul. I've got some things he needs to hear. And so... Uh, <laughs> Ananias says, uh, I've heard many things about this man, how much harm he has done to the saints in Jerusalem. And here he is, or here he now has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. And so let me, if I could give you the translation of this. Can you imagine being this guy and, and God saying, hey, you know that guy that likes to imprison people like you? I need you to go talk to him. And so... <laughs> Would you, would you probably be about the same way as like, God, I know that you know all things and you created everything, but do you, have you read the newspaper about this guy? And so you're reasoning with God as though he hasn't heard that, as though God's going to go, you know what, I forgot. I hadn't, I hadn't paid attention. <laughs> so this same man, it is a person who recognizes not only that he has been freed from his sin, but he's so well acquainted with the law. And says, it's finally over. I don't have to keep that any longer. The, the thing that I couldn't keep anyway, that I was such a miserable failure at, though better than my contemporaries, I've now been set free. Do you think a man who would understand that would have a passion for keeping that pure? So I would have to beg with us and say, the church should be able to say, your salvation came at an enormous cost. Please never devalue that by just thinking that you can live any way you want. Or think that somehow that now that God has done this great work that you could say, thanks God, I'll take it from here. What a shame that would be. Paul is giving us reasons why we should never have that kind of a mentality. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. This is an amazing thing that I hope that we all understand. And if you're, if you're actively involved in giving away what you believe, of giving away your faith, and you may encounter all kinds of people with all kinds of different belief systems, if they believe in the God of the Bible, but they don't really know what all that means, great, then you introduce them to the one that you know. There's, if you were here for the conference, Terry Reynolds was one of our speakers and I had him, uh, he and, and uh, maybe you guys have heard of a guy named Odin Fong. But uh, they both have churches out by me. And the three of our churches got together for a men's retreat. And when I'm on your side out there, I'm not one who usually takes a lot of notes. Rob takes in, incredible notes. And he knows what's being said, too. I don't know how your brain works, bro, but I'm, I'm envious. So I'm listening to Terry. And of all of the things that I could write down, which I usually don't write down notes, but I was so, I had never heard him before. And, and I wrote down in my little notebook and it said, you don't talk about Jesus like he does unless you know him. 
So we want to be able to explain to people who Jesus is because of our deep knowledge of who he is on the personal level. We want to be able to understand him theologically, and yeah, we want to be able to quote Bible verses and all the rest of it. But think about it. When you're talking with somebody, you want to be able to say to them, let me tell you about the one that I know. And how do I know him? Because he's done such wonderful and great things for me. So here, Paul is able to say, who loved me. Now, if you're talking to people who are not Christian, and whatever they say that their belief system is, say, whatever deity is that you believe in, has he ever told you that he loves you? I can show you on just about every single page where God will either expressly say it, or he'll give you a demonstration of it. This same Paul writes to us in Romans chapter 8, or chapter 5 rather, verse 8, he says that God has demonstrated his love for us, in that while we were sinners, he died for the ungodly. It's one thing to say, I love you, and it's another thing entirely to give a demonstration. When we're talking about the kind of love that saves from hell, that's going to be a pretty impressive demonstration, I would think. Well, how about the cross? One who had nothing to confess, had nothing for which he was guilty, nor did he have to pay the price for anything that he had done. And yeah, he could have gotten his way out of it. We've just gone through that whole process of what we call the triumphal entry of Jesus, and then Good Friday, and then Resurrection Sunday. We've just gone through that whole thing, right? I don't know if you've ever taken the time to look through the Gospels this way, but remember how many times they either wanted to kill him or apprehend him or whatever else? And it says he hid himself, or he moved through their midst, or he did whatever else, because the time had not yet come. But let's remember at triumphal entry, he presented himself. Now was the time. He was in control of all such things. He came in on the day that he was supposed to, in the way that he was supposed to, on the mode of transportation that he was supposed to, and the people cried out as they were supposed to. Why? Because God said it would go down that way. So all of that stuff was to put into motion what God had already planned. We have to understand that. So when Paul is saying these kinds of things are just straightforward statements without any qualifiers, they're just facts, who loved us, and he gave himself for, notice he doesn't say us or we, he gave himself for me. This is Paul making it incredibly personal. So that takes it out, the yeah, but I need to do this. Well, yeah, you should do that, but let's stop at the important part that Jesus died for you individually because he loved you individually. And if you were the only one that ever needed saving, he'd have done it just for you. You're that important to him. Isn't it funny how we have the the mentality of people nowadays is to build up their self-esteem and their programs for it and all the rest. And isn't it weird how kids that go through all of that stuff, when they're not told that they have worth in the eyes of God, that all of that external stuff has no benefit to them? They give them participation trophies and all the rest of it because we want to build up their self-esteem. You know... It wasn't even a conscious thing, but from the moment that I got saved, I never struggled with self-esteem. Why? Because the God of eternity loves me. And he gave himself for me. I have worth in his eyes that I still don't grasp after 32 years. I still cannot even begin to get to the, the most basic elements of that in my understanding. I am, not, I am not equipped to grasp that kind of love. So how will I ever struggle with my self-worth? In the flesh, it has none. In the eternal, my worth to God is incalculable. So I never struggle with such a thing. Because I can read verses like this and go, he's not just speaking in some flowery language, but this is deeply personal. 
So we get to verse 21 and he says some other things that should be self-evident. He says, now, I don't want to set aside the grace of God. I don't want to diminish this. I don't want to make it something less than what it is. It came at an enormous cost. So for him to be so certain of his topic, if you will, to say, look, we can't put the law on people. We, even the Jews, the best of us who have known it our whole lives, we were given it as a stewardship to make it known to the world. We can't even begin to keep this. So Jesus paid the price and he's given us grace. Now he says, I don't want that to be trivialized, is what Paul says. I don't want to set that aside. Because if righteousness could have come through the law, then Jesus died in vain. Great way of witnessing. Look, whoever you are who thinks that God is only saving good people, I just want you to recognize that if you could come before God and say, I deserve to be saved, then you've got to explain what happened to Jesus. Because it's one of two things. You can either earn your way, or somehow you think that if I can't earn my way, then there's got to be something else. Let's remember, I shared this at Madison. We come in on, I, we, I love the, the Wisconsin experience. I've got to be honest with you. And yeah, even the weather, it, I'm digging it. We're on our way to Lambeau later. But I brought my buddy Rob, and um, I always bring someone with me every trip out here. Because I want them to come and see what it's like. And I got a chance to kind of share with them the other night what Paul also says in Romans at chapter 6, verse 23, we know the verse well, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Right? We know that passage. But if you don't really take the time to look at why he says what he says and what it actually means, you kind of miss the point. He says, here's what we know. The wages of sin is death. We understand wages. Those of us who have work, we know that we put in a certain amount of hours and we get, we get paid for what we do. So our wages are given to us. We get the product of our labor. Well, he tells me that the wages of sin, which is, yeah, it's what we all produce. So what do we get for that? Death. But there's an alternative. There is, however, the gift of God, which cannot be earned, right? Anybody ever wake up, if you do the whole Christmas exchange with gifts and all that stuff, do you ever, you know, put them all there after you've unwrapped them all and then start paying people for everything they just gave you? No, those are gifts. You didn't earn them. They were given freely by the person who had taken the time to get them for you with you in mind, and they handed them to you as a blessing. You wouldn't think to pay for those. They're gifts. So you have one of two options, and every human has to make this decision. You produce sin, and sin brings about death, period. So you're going to be repaid for that. Unless you say, I'd rather have the free gift. The gift of God. Well, Paul says these things for us to be reminded that if righteousness would come through the law, and if people want to say, well, that was to the Jewish people. No, no, no. This is the same situation of the people nowadays that might think that you earn your way to heaven. Same kind of a mentality. If, I don't care if it's Jew or Gentile, that think you earn your way to heaven, then you please, you have to explain Jesus to me. I want to close with this. The book of Colossians. In chapter 3. I'm sorry, it's in chapter 2. We are at, uh, at verse 14. And remember, there's a, a wonderful consistency in Paul's writing. I, I absolutely love how he does the things that he does. 
verse 14, he's using the same kind of arguments with the people at Colossae. And once again, the law is the issue. And he wants us to recognize the law was put there not for us to, to just set aside. It was put there because God said, remember all the way back as the law was just about to be put out, he would say to the children of Israel, be holy for what? I, the Lord your God, am holy. Peter reemphasizes that by quoting it in his first epistle. So let's make sure we understand the standard here. God says, you Those who call me Lord, you be holy. What does holy mean? Perfect. How are you guys doing with that? Just take a little poll right here. How are we all doing with perfection? Are you failing as miserably as I am? You just don't want to raise your hand. Okay, well, we can all conclude that we are failing at that. Because why? We know that there is a standard. And who is it? I, the Lord, your God, am holy. There's our standard. We have to attain to that. That would be bad news if it was left at that, right? Look at what Paul says. So if we want to say that it is all of what Jesus had done by those last couple of verses that we saw just a moment ago in Galatians, here's how he puts it in Colossians. I love this. Speaking of Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that would be the law, which was contrary to us, means that it's not even in our nature to do those things naturally. So they were against us, they were contrary to us, and he has taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. Why is Paul able to say, I have been crucified with Jesus Christ? Because he took every requirement and nailed it to a cross. So you take passages like Colossians here and put it in with Galatians, put all the pieces together with all of the arguments that he uses against this, and you start to put together such a rich picture. Look at verse 15. Having, past tense, disarmed the principalities and powers, those who had the ability to claim us because of sin, even the devil himself, he defeated him. Now, these principalities, these powers, these requirements, these things that were against us, look at what it says. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. I only know how to explain this one way. What happened at the cross, from the world's perspective and from his enemies, they looked as defeat as though we won. I look at that and say, that was the most impressive display of raw power that the world has ever seen. Because Jesus didn't die for himself, he died for me. And we knew that from the moment that he breathed his last, the clock started ticking until he took his life back again. And he resurrected. Showing that not only could he pay the price for sin, but he had the power to bring back death to life. Amazing stuff. So then he uses it as a way of saying to those people at Colossae, so don't let people judge you of the things that you don't keep this element or that element above food or drink or new moons or Sabbaths. These are a shadow of things to come. The substance of them are Jesus. They were only testifying of who he is. So don't put your faith in outward external things. Your faith is to be very simply put in the person of Jesus Christ. What he has already done because, yeah, He did those things way before any of us were even thought of. So for Paul to be able to say, I have been, and we're 2,000 years later, when you read things that are written in the past tense, just know that that is speaking of you as well. You get browbeat into what you're supposed to do. The devil loves to tell you what a failure you are. I would love to just remind you of this, that the next time that the devil brings out his list, 
of all of your failures. And if you did it with me and I was to show it to you and we did it in like a scroll, I'd walk off to the side and it would hit the floor and roll out that way. And even if I was to read every one of those offenses, I could probably add some that he forgot. And I could also remember that all of those things were paid for by his blood. We've been here the last few days talking about the goodness and the grace of God and the price that it, was, that it cost for those things to be reconciled. If you are in that place where he has done that for you and you know that to be the case with you and it's that, that relationship that you have with him, rejoice in it. If you're here this morning and you've never made your peace with him about such matters and you do think that however you would want to answer it, that when you stand before him that you will plead your case as a good person, my hope is that you will look at what Paul has said here because there's a guy who knew what it would be to earn, if you will, your way to heaven and realized it was a useless exercise because it was humanly impossible. No one could ever live up to such a standard. Grace is what God offers Charlie said it this morning, it is unmerited favor. It means that God will show you favor that you never deserved, you never earned, but he's given it freely. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that comes from hearing it and reading it, learning it, studying it. God, you haven't left us as orphans, your word tells us. You have made known to us everything that is necessary that we can know where we stand in you at any given time. Again, no other religion that there is on the planet can even say such a thing. We know where we stand with the creator of the universe at all times. What a glorious truth. We thank you. We give you praise. Go before us in power, we ask in Jesus' name.